Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Hey, what's going on, folks? Welcome to another episode of Affirmative Murder. I am Alvin Williams, joined as always by my partner in true crime, Franco Evans. What's up? Folks, if you can hear the pitter-patter, the sweet pitter-patter of all those raindrops, we are apparently here in Baltimore supposed to get rain for like 40 days and 40s nights, some Noah's Ark shit. So even though the inclement weather is upon us, we still did not let that stop us from delivering the sweet, sweet ear content. So we are here. Fran, how's your weekend been striving and surviving through these inclement situations? It's been um, it's been rough, man. It's been when you get wet, it starts to get a little cold, pretty uncomfortable. Makes and it's also job. weird in the summertime yeah. to be like wet and hot. And it's humid. Ugh. Yeah. So then it's like, like yesterday I had um, I had my shorts on mm-hmm. and I had like a windbreaker, a windbreaker on, uh-huh. but it, you start to sweat, it starts to stick. It's yeah, just ugh. it's super uncomfortable. Yeah, it's you just, just feel nasty. Yeah, it's, it's super uncomfortable. So I like yeah. I just took it off and just like fuck it. I'm sure there's a thousand songs about summer rain, but it's not fun. No. I'm sure all those songs are probably fun, love songs or something like that. But summer rain is gross, and I'm not into it. <laughs> uh, folks, if you've been following us on social media, you're part of the Facebook group, you are aware that this weekend we had a very monumental occasion. I want to give it up for Miss Marina. She was coming down. She came for Panic at the Disco, but she stayed for a friend with the murder. We met up at a Barnes & Nobles. It was triumphant. It was her, her friend Kat, and her boyfriend. Who I didn't remember, his, I don't really remember his name, but he was a strong, talent, silent type. You know, he was a strong, silent type. He had a camera with him, you know, and I think he was there to just make sure everything went right and to make sure we weren't, in fact, killers. You know, Fran <laughs> uh, p- popped him up on the, uh, a face, FaceTime situation Very because briefly, he, he was out there delivering the mail yep. and, you know, getting us you packages. And so he had to take care of that situation. But it was a very beautiful moment. Very fun. I appreciate her for, you know, wanting to reach out. It, it just was really cool to do that. Like, I feel like we are starting to build this cool little community. And to meet somebody from the community is, is just always really fun. Mm-hmm. And to meet a like-minded person who is into the same kind of weird shit you're into. So it was fun. And also, this weekend that's been going on is that the stickers are starting to arrive. So that's really cool as well, seeing people put the pictures up with their stickers. That makes us feel really cool that you like them. If you like the little extra little note we left in there, I'm glad you guys are appreciating all, appreciating all that kind of stuff. And now that second wave of uh, requests is starting to come in. We will get on that. Um, but the first wave of people will always hold a special place in our heart. And we appreciate you guys wanting some content from us, wanting some merchandise, for lack of a better term. I, you know, it was free as a sticker, but it is merch, I guess. And just wanting to reach out and give us your address and trusting that we won't, you know, uh, 
try to use you in some kind of scam to or something like that. You know, we're trustworthy people now. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've, I've paid for my sins, you know, so I don't do that anymore, you know. And uh, therefore, you know, so we appreciate you guys reaching out and, and you know, wanting some content from us. And, and it's just been really cool. And the second wave of people, we'll be getting on that. And we'll yeah. get those stickers out to you ASAP. Everybody else, like pretty much got it on the same day almost. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. Yeah, you know, I, I did, did you? That. Did you? Yeah, yeah you put the finesse did, on it. I did it on purpose. That's the, is that the uh, postman English? Like you put? The, I can't tell you. Oh wow, I respect <laughs> it. I respect it. I respect it. Uh, really quick before we jump into um, the good vibes, I want to touch on a crazy situation that hit me personally because this is one of my favorite places to frequent. Uh, we we received the news yesterday, and then we, I had to follow up later on about the Trader Joe's standoff situation. So apparently, you know, out in Silver Lake, California, a guy was in an altercation um, with the police because. Apparently, he shot his grandmother and his girlfriend, and then he drove to a Trader Joe's to, to run in from the police and just held up in there for a few hours. As far as I know, everybody made it out safely, but don't bring Trader Joe's into your domestic violence issues, okay? Mm-hmm. Trader Joe's has done nothing to anybody. They make great poultry products, their meat is divine, and their peanut butter chocolate pretzels are something close to to what I imagine the feeling you get from heroin is. So don't bring them into your bullshit uh, and, and, and and shame on you. And his bond is set at $2 million, and it should be higher Dang. because he just ruined a couple of people who are trying to get some loose uh, grain gran- uh, granola and some bananas and just trying to live their life in a nonviolent kind of way, going to Trader Joe's, and he ruined their day and traumatized them. And I don't think that's cool. So shame on that person. Did he kill anybody? No, nah, I'm pretty sure. Oh, I mean, shot. I think he just shot his grandmother oh, and his okay. girlfriend. I don't wow. know if they are dead, but I don't think anybody at Trader Joe's in this hostage situation was in put in any kind of uh, life-threatening situation, aside from having a gun waved around and, okay. you know, some guy being like, shut up, you know, and locking the doors. But I think everybody got out of that situation safely. I don't know about his home situation. Well, I'm glad nobody lost their life. Hopefully not. Yes. That um that 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 made me very uneasy. I don't I I frequent Trader Joe's very often, so I don't like to hear about another place that you have to look over your shoulder when you go to. That's yeah. never, that's never fun to hear. Um, but we're not gonna let that bring us down. It is a rainy day, horribly rainy. So what we need is to, we need to metaphorically clear these skies up, bring some positivity onto everybody. And 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 we're coming to you from the past, but if you're listening to this, it's at least Monday. So let's get you some good vibes and some good energy to turn that frown, that Monday frown, upside down. So let's get into this, folks. Yes, folks, gray skies are going to clear up, put on a happy face. I believe that was Maya Angelou. Wrong. All right, Fran, are you ready for my good vibes this week? Yep. Okay, so my good vibes is another uh, story that could have turned into another uh, incident where we make fun of some uh, horrible person by giving them some kind of funny name like Permit Patty or, you know, uh, you know, uh, Barbecue Betsy or something like that. Mm. This actually turned into a situation where the community rallied behind this young man and it turned into a feel-good story, so I wanted to share it. So this is my story that I found about a kid named Jaquan Faulkner. So Jaquan Faulkner is a 13-year-old entrepreneur who was reported for operating a hot dog stand without a license. The Minneapolis Department of Health received a complaint this summer about the hot dog stand that Jaquan Faulkner had set up outside his home. He called the operation Mr. Faulkner's Old Fashioned Hot Dogs. How do you see a kid selling hot dogs on a summer day 
I would assume smiling and mm-hmm. trying to get his hot dogs off at least even if it's a fake smile he's I would assume he's not like yeah man you want a fucking hot dog <laughs> I would assume he's like excuse me mister would you like a hot dog mm-hmm. they're old fashioned something that you know he, he doesn't even know what it means he just like <laughs> saw it on a package he's like these are old fashioned hot dogs uh, like what does that mean Di- beef they're beef old fashioned it's like alright cool man well I'll take two uh, because that's what you do man you see a kid selling candy selling hot dogs selling waters who sees that and is like ugh Disgusting, taking up space on the street, selling hot dogs without a permit. I will be calling the authorities. Mm. Never in my life has that been my reaction to seeing a kid doing something. No, like you, you go into the grocery store. Even then, if I don't have cash, I'm not like, sorry, man, I can't buy any candy. I don't have any cash. But I'm not like, you have the audacity to bother me when I'm trying to buy my groceries and ask me a question. Where's my phone? I'm calling the police. That's never my reaction to that, you mm. know. But somebody who, fortunately for them, will remain anonymous. It, it, it was a phone call, so it wasn't some person caught on video. Of course. Yeah. But not, of course, because it's been happening, man. These people have been getting caught up, like, you know, going viral for the, all the wrong reasons. This person, cowardishly, you know, instead of making the phone call in front of Jaquan, was like, maybe even bought a hot dog and was, like, dissatisfied with the, the quality of the hot dog. Maybe they don't like old-fashioned hot dogs and was like, instead of giving the kids some pointers or just being, like, you know, whatever. It's a kid. I feel good. I gave a kid some money. I bought his little crappy hot dog. You went, no, no, no. I'm going to be writing this person up to the authorities, and I will have that place shut down. Yeah, but don't bring your personal problems into trying to fuck up somebody else's shit. I, I, that's what I feel like. Yeah. I feel like people have, uh, have to just deal is... with other shit, so I'm just going to take it out on somebody else. For, like, for what? It's yeah. a kid. It's a kid selling hot dogs on a <laughs> summer day. What is that is one of the most innocent things I can even think of, mm-hmm. you know, you know, maybe he even has some Gatorades underneath, the, you know. But anyway, what happened is instead of closing down the operation, the agency decided to help health inspectors even pitched in to pay for the eighty seven dollar permit. Mm. So now Jaquan has all the proper uh, paperwork that he needs and he's been doing pop ups around the city of Minneapolis to, uh, to you know, to make extra money, to, you know, capitalize on the story being out there. Mm. And he's going to donate some of that money, his proceeds from his pop-up hot dog stands, to uh, um, uh, charities that focus on mental health. That's cool. Is it called pop-up hot dogs? No, it's called, oh, it's say, called Mr. Be... Faulkner's Old-Fashioned oh, yeah. Hot Dogs. I would say that would be cool. Yeah, so he's very kind. He's like, I'm 13, but you refer to me as Mr. Faulkner, and this is my old-fashioned hot dog it stand. It should have been Mr. Faulkner's. Mr. Faulkner's Franks is would have been a bomb ass name, and if you're hearing this, Jaquan, Mr. Faulkner's Franks, you can have it. Mr. Faulkner's that's, that's fire. Pop up hot dog stand. I like that too because if he's just popping up on different area and parts of the uh, where area is it? Minneapolis, Minneapolis. Minnesota. That'll be cool. He's just popping up, and you never know where he's at. Exactly. So I'm popping up. It's in the name. <laughs> I'm Mr. Faulkner. I'm giving you the. I'm giving you the hot dog straight from my hand to you. Yep. So you get to see this celebrity that I'm, I have right now. I'm using it to benefit myself, but also I'm gonna make a donation to mental health. Yeah. Come on, man. Are you gonna be here tomorrow? Nope. Yeah. Nah. You gotta. You gotta. <laughs> you gotta earn this. You gotta earn this old fashioned hot dog. I, you, you never know where I'm gonna be. You gotta look for me. Follow me on my socials. Yep. Jaquan is, is is quite the entrepreneur, man. And shout out to him. So that's my story this week. It's just something light. Yeah. I thought it was cool that you know we've been hearing all you know all these crazy stories. The girl that was selling waters, the guy that was trying to barbecue out there in, in uh, Oakland. Uh, there was another story about 
a couple that was walking around in Berkeley, California, and some lady just like walked up to him and told him to get out. These stories all ended up. Mm-hmm. People rallied around them and was like, "Hey, that's not okay. Get away from these people." And then you're gonna go viral too. You wanna you wanna do crazy phone calls on people now? Okay, here here's the attention you wanted times a billion. Yeah. But this was one where there was no bad guy in the scenario to put a face to, but it ended up going right. Everybody around Jaquan, the police that came out, the health department was like, "It's just a kid, man. Hey, kid. They called us out here, but hey, you gotta keep the hot dog container closed and you gotta have a permit." Here's the permit. You can have it. We paid for it. Congratulations. You are now a fully licensed business. You know, Mr. so I thought... Mr. Faulkner's. Mr. Faulkner's uh, old-fashioned hot dogs. If you're in the Minneapolis area, go hit them up. Buy a hot dog. I don't really eat hot dogs like I used to because I found out what's in them. But if that kid wants to sell hot dogs, that's good for him. I, I just like that name, but I need yeah, to get... Really, I, uh, need, that I, need, I need to get contact with him and be like, look, you should change your name to this. <laughs> And then when people ask Say it again, Mr. Faulkner's pop-up hot dog stand. Yeah. It's kind of long, it's, but yeah, I, I, I like it. Saying, you can't really <laughs> put that on the sign. You know? <laughs> I like it. And they were just like, are you going to be here tomorrow? He's like, no. Yeah. I'm like, where are you going to be? I don't know. And just like, he turns off on his bike. Bling, bling. <laughs> and he got like a trailer hooked up to his back of his bike. <laughs> <laughs> he just, he just Break rides his off into the sunset. Ride off, ride off on a trike. <laughs> oh, shout, out to, shout out to Jaquan Faulkner. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. So, um, my good vibe story this week. It's about Laura and Chris. <clears throat> Laura and Chris. Yeah, Laura and Chris have had no expertise in ocean pollution or making prosthetic limbs. Okay. But they passionately believe they could tackle both issues with one solution. Mm-hmm. Chris, Chris and Laura, did I say Laura at first? Yeah. I did. Okay, make sure. All right. Chris and Laura are the founders of the Million Ways Project, a charity that recycles ocean plastic into 3D printed prosthetics oh. limbs for, need, for needy people around the world. So 38-year-old Chris was struck with an inspiration for the project one night back in April. Two weeks later, him, he and his wife had the, had the project up and running. Currently, the couple prepares the plastic by cutting it up by hand and feeding it into a paper shredder. And then a 3D printer, after that, they use as an... And they shred it up uh-huh. and put it in the 3D printer. Yeah. And after that, they use an app to, con- to connect with people who need prosthetic limbs. So they design a, a gadget... Spe- they design... The gadget specifically to their measurements. Okay. So, um, with the prosthetic limbs, they was giving it to these people that needed them, mm-hmm. and they was charging only forty five dollars for these prosthetic limbs that the people needed for. I would imagine that be- because they put the price in there, a regular prosthetic limb probably costs a lot more than oh, forty five dollars. Yes. Yeah. Okay, cool. I was yeah. like, I-, I thought I was gonna say like they're giving them to people. It's like no. We're charging, but it's, I would assume it's way less. It's than It's affordable. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, $45. And that's the thing, man. In any of these kind of circumstances, I understand that people want to make a profit, but any kind of business that is for profit under the umbrella of like doing something good for people, if you're drastically cutting the average price of something, mm-hmm. I'm all for you making a profit because you're doing something good for people and you deserve to be compensated for that good deed that you're doing. So if a regular prosthetic limb costs $1,000 and you're selling them for $45, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so it costs, it costs $45, and mm-hmm. they have a fund. It's called, their last name is, is weird. The, Mar, the Mariottis. Oh, that's uh, Italian. Yeah, that's the last name. So the fund is this fund through donations, sponsorships, and selling keychains on the charity's website. Nice. Yeah. So since launching the initiative, uh, they have donated 18 limbs to disabled individuals. Nice. So they said, quote, the Million Ways Project brings together two 
unacceptable global situations and offers a practical and sustainable solution. Mm-hmm. Chris and Laura are now working on working on obtaining a commercial size shredder so they can multiply their production tenfold. Nice. Yeah, so I would imagine they must be some kind of they must have one of them has an engineering degree or something like that. I don't just have probably, a three D yeah. printer laying around yeah, and I don't probably. know how to just use it. So that's cool. But that's awesome, man. But that's school work to work and, and that's really cool. I you know, eighteen is a small sample size, but clearly it's something that is working out for them and they and they're feeling inspired to do more. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure that number will grow as time goes on. What we're going to do is we're going to take a quick break. I would assume you guys may be listening to this on a work day. So um, to take us off, I want to uh, put on that Bruno Mars lazy song. Because sometimes you just don't feel like doing anything and you want to lay in your bed. So this will make you feel those vibes. Even though you can't do it, you can imagine what it would be like right now if you were laying in your bed. Maybe watching uh, Handmaid's Tale or the first season of The Wire. And just relaxing. But you can't. You're stuck, at, you're stuck at work And Bernadette is late And you can't leave until she clocks in But that's alright We're gonna get through it together We'll be right back All right, and we are back. Fran, I believe it is your week to go first. Are you ready to tell me some fucked up shit? Yes. Okay. I don't think this one is going to top my last weekend as far as how gross it was. Cool, because that was, um, that was, that was, that was, that was a lot. Yeah, it was, was a, lot. a lot. I mean, this one is kind of close, but it's not, it's not, not as, bad. as bad. Yeah. Okay. So, fair <clears throat> enough. My friend Verda this week is Carl Charlie Brandt. Carl Charlie Brandt. Ever heard him before? No. The only no. Carl I know is Carl Eugene Watts. I think, and I think we did him, but yeah. I, um, no, Carl Carl Charlie Brandt. Yeah. Nah, not ringing the bell. Okay. Have you guys out there ever heard of Carl Charlie Brandt? This isn't Door of the Explorer. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's like, yes. <laughs> Two days from now. <laughs> yeah. So <clears throat> Carl Charlie Brandt. Was born February twenty third, nineteen fifty seven. Okay. Carl Charlie Brandt was the second child and only son of Herbert. And this name, I don't. I tried to look it up. Okay. It's Herbert, just Herbert a simple name, but it just seems so difficult to me. Herbert the pervert. Well, hey there, Chris. Why don't you come on, stop by, maybe grab a couple of popsicles. Hmm. No. Okay. Herbert is his dad, and then I, I guess her name is Ilse? 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 I L S E? What is How do you I-L-S-E? say that? I L S E? Yeah. Ilse? 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 Guess we can run with that. Sure. <laughs> let's just, hey, you know what? Let's just call her Izzy. Okay, we're going to call her Izzy. Here we go. So, Brent was the second child and only son of Herbert and Izzy Brent, mm-hmm. two German immigrants who originally lived in Connecticut. Brandt's father worked as a laborer for a division of International Harvester, eventually worked working his way up to the draftsman, the draftsman and project engineer. Okay. However, the family frequently moved 
and as a result, Brandt and his older sister Angela attended several different schools. Okay. Brandt was regarded as a good student. He was shy and had difficult adjusting to new surroundings. In September of 1968, Herbert was transferred to an international harvester plant in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Oh. Every summer and Christmas, the family would vacation in Florida where Brent went on hunting trips with his father. Okay. So these are these are Caucasian people. You, you said German ing- German immigrants. Are they white? They look white. Okay, yeah, I was you said German, they hunt. Yeah. Yeah, Connecticut. All right, cool. I just wanted to, just wanted to, I was like, is yeah. this a black family? It's all over the place. German hunters. <laughs> like, this can't be a black person. On the night of January 3rd, 1971, Brent, then 13, mm-hmm. walked into his parents' bedroom while Herbert was shaving and and Izzy, who was eight months pregnant at the time, Ooh. was taking a bath. Brent shot both parents at point blank range. Wow. His father survived, but his mother died at the scene. Mm. Brent the, then the co- little baby. Yep. Br- I think no, I think she survived. I think oh. she, yeah, I think she survived. Brent then confronted his sister Angela, but his gun wouldn't fire. After the physical struggle, Angela managed to calm her brother down before she fled the house and sought help from neighbors. And another article I read that how she calmed him down was she was like, you know, I love you. Don't do this, you know, I'm here for you. And that That worked? That turned the switch off and he was I guess he was just like he was fine after that. I feel like that's that's pretty wild. That's that's a different level of crazy because yeah. like I'll bet that you're psychotic. After you do that, that yeah. somebody just yeah. needs to be like, hey man, it's all right. We yeah. all have bad days. And you're like, you know what, I guess we do. After you shoot two people? Yeah. Your parents at that? The ringing has stopped. <laughs> so some shit that you're like, all right, cool. Well I'm gonna go to the neighbor's house really quick. Okay. I love you. Oh my God and you run into the street, you know because I, mean? I, I I don't know if I could put yeah. on that face to me be like either. It's all right, you know. Like it's this is all cool. Yeah. Like this is fine. I I, could, I don't know. Let's just sit down and talk about yeah, this. Yeah, you wouldn't you know? be able. To, he would be able to read the fear and yeah. like. I'm gonna get you, Cynthia. I'm gonna get you some iced tea, and I'll be right back. <laughs> Somebody help me! <laughs> Run outside and shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Angela managed to calm her brother down before she fled the house and sought help from the neighbors. Brent also left the house and knocked on the door of a girl next door named Sandy Ratcliffe, oh, come on. telling her. Sandy, I just shot my mom and dad. Herbert Brandt later identified his son as his attacker. Wow. Yeah. I guess so she, he didn't do anything to the girl. I was about to say, I guess you thought she was going to do something to the neighbor. No, he didn't. No. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because he was too young to be charged with the murder under Indiana law, Brandt appeared bef- before a grand jury and was ordered to undergo three separate psychiatric evaluations, mm-hmm. all of which couldn't determine. Like, I just don't I don't. I don't mean to stop my story, but I just don't understand. Like they need to get some more advanced tests or something. Like how yeah, like they what they couldn't determine they couldn't that, deter- no. that something was wrong with right. him. It's like he shot his mom and his dad. <laughs> so maybe your test is wrong. I just don't maybe get it. maybe your test is just like a little wrong. I mean, he shot a pregnant mom. I mean, reading this, I don't. This, he wasn't on like a Ted Bundy type of level as far as him being very intelligent and. You know, can just persuade people that he's what he's doing is right, and you know, being really smart. I just yeah, don't... but like, the, it, I feel like, I mean, that's its own level of insanity. Yeah. But to be a thirteen-year-old kid and just wake up one day and like, I'm gonna shoot my parents. Oh yeah. That's something's that's something's wrong. That's fucking nuts. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
Um, he had to do three separate psychiatric evaluations, mm-hmm. all of which couldn't determine what motivated him to shoot his parents. One of Brandt's psychiat- psychiatrists, Ren- Ronald Panzer, sure. that's spelled super weird, Panzer, later, later recounted, basically, he said, quote, basically, I was looking for a mental illness, and he hasn't shown the signs and symptoms of serious mental illness, which I thought was what the court wanted to know. Interviews interviews with Brandt's family and friends showed that he had no conflicts at home or at school and and had previously shown nothing but devotion to his mother. That's, that's weird. That's yeah. weird, man. Yeah, it is. It seems like a switch flip. <laughs> it's nice. just the, the human mind. That's just... It's a complicated place, yeah. man. So Brandt spent one year at the, at the uh, psychiatric hospital before being released back into the custody of his family. They never spoke of the incident again, and Brant's youngest sister uh, were never told about the shooting, which is his baby sister. So he just got to go home. Yep. And his dad was like, I'm not going to put you in the foster system. I'm going to bring you back home. Yep. Wow. Yeah. That doesn't, um, I would assume your story, it, go, go, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, this doesn't feel so, like this ends well. Oh, no. Yeah. yeah <laughs> Do you think that's going to be the end of my story? <laughs> he just goes home, live happy at last. Yeah, well, no. and then he never did anything ever again. <laughs> Goodbye. No, uh, uh-uh. I damn sure wouldn't did no story like that. Uh, yeah. So t- this 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 happened in two thousand four. So shortly after, and then that happened in ninety. That happened in seventy one. Oh wow! What I just read. This is two thousand four. Shortly after Brent's release, his family relocated to Florida. One year later, Brent's father and sister moved away after he remarried. While Brent himself. Remained in Florida under the care of his grandparents. Okay. Um, okay, yeah. So in 1974, Brandt got a degree on electronics and became a radar specialist. In 1986, he married his longtime girlfriend, Terry, who had been told about his past and had accepted it. Ride or die. Yeah. Um, who, no- how, do you tell, <laughs> how do you tell that story to somebody and they're like, you know what? Well, your past is your past, you know? So yeah. I, I don't think you're that person anymore. Well, you know something? For anybody who listens to Serial and Serial, we just watched, uh, you know, Who Took Johnny and Paul Benassi is a married man with a child. So yeah, that's true. I mean, you know, uh, so I, I never mind. It's like I just want to get all, you know, all my skeletons out there that, you know, I shot my mother. My, 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 I shot and killed my mother and shot my dad in the back. I intended Almost for him to die my baby as well. Sister, yeah. yeah. You know, so I just okay, wanted to put that's that out cool. There. You know, I, we can get past. Or that. went like, or went like, um, <laughs> oh, you want to oh, let's do it, let's do a thing. Okay, I'm you be you be uh 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 this dude, Brent. right? Yeah, okay. I'm a, I'm gonna be a, a female, right? Okay, cool. okay, all right, okay, and go. So you know, I just you know, I really like you, and it's our second date. So I just wanted to you know put some things out there. Um, I do have a child, and um, I am a divorcee. Me and my husband just didn't work out, so you know I had to do what I had to do. Um, we are not together anymore. We don't associate. He pays his child support on time. And, you know, I just really hope that that doesn't, I'm sorry I didn't tell you that up front, but I just wanted to get all my skeletons out there and, you know, um, just let you know that, you know, I'm in, I'm in this 100%. But, you know, so, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I know that's crazy, but, you know, you really, I know you couldn't top that, but, like, so, like, you don't have anything, like, you have anything you need to tell me, <laughs> you know? It's just, let's just be open. Let's get it out there. I don't, I feel like this is how you talk. I don't have any skeletons either, but uh, oh. I don't think this one is really that bad. And I had a yeah, yeah, okay. I had a misdemeanor when I was thirteen. Okay, old, yeah, right, that's whatever. We're kids, you know. Like everybody yeah, gets into I things, just, you know. Uh, yeah, it's just nothing crazy. I shot and killed my mom. Uh, I'm sorry, what? Uh, I said I shot and killed my mom, and I 
tried to kill my dad, shot him also. And my mom was uh, pregnant with my baby sister oh at the time. God. Oh, uh, and the baby? And, yeah. Oh. Uh, and I tried to kill my sister, but, you know, oh, the oh gun jam. So, you know, I don't think that's... I think you had more of a difficult time than I did. Oh, yes. Um, um excuse me, madam. Would you like more wine? I, I'm fine. Um, thank you. Um, so and then you, what happened? You did you go to you went to jail, right? No, they didn't charge me because I was 13 at the time. So, uh, I just had to go to a, a psychiatrist. Uh huh. But they couldn't prove it. They couldn't see. They couldn't. I didn't have anything wrong with me. So you know. Right. Just you just killed your mom and just, you and you yeah, shot your dad. Nothing yeah. wrong though. Nothing, yeah. I don't think it's anything yeah. serious. Okay. Um. So will you marry me? I will. Scene. That was, that was good, man. That was good. Yeah, that that, that felt good. That felt good. Wow, that's nuts. <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy as shit. Oh wow. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Yeah, well, summed it up. That, that, yeah, I don't have any more questions anymore. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> you made me lose my place, man. That's cool, man. I can edit it. <laughs> uh, okay, yeah, okay. So, yeah, Brent himself remained in Florida under the care of his grandparents in 1974. Brent got a degree in electronics and became a radar specialist. In 1986, he remarried his longtime girlfriend, Terry who had been told about his past and accepted it. Mm-hmm. No relatives were invited to their wedding. I'm sure none of them yeah, to come in got their way. The couple settled in a beach house in, in Big Pen. Is it Big Pine? Big Pine Key. Big, that sounds better. Big Pine Key? Yeah. Oh, in Florida? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. That's one of them. All right. A lot the, of beautiful keys down there in Key yeah, West, man. The southernmost portion of, of the Florida Keys in 1989. On September 2nd, 2004, Brant and Terry evacuated from their home ahead of Hurricane Ivan. Is that oh. A, Ivan? Oh, it's definitely been one. Yeah. My favorite one as of recent is, has been Hurricane Chris. That brought out. It was. No, I had I some good laughs. laughs. I had some good laughs on Twitter. This, Hurricane Chris happened happened like last month, uh, and everybody started doing the a bay bay. Like they was, everybody oh, wow. was like, when Hurricane Chris come through, and they they had gifts of Hurricane Chris shaking his beads. And his, <laughs> Twitter's funny, oh, man. man that's <laughs> yeah, so they evacuated home ahead of Hurricane Ivan, their niece, Michelle Lynn Jones, invited them to stay at her residence in near Orlando. Um, Michelle just being a, a good-hearted person uh-huh. invited, you know, I think it was her, I think it's her uncle by marriage, I believe, uh-huh. for Brant and Terry to come stay at her place. Just like, you know, I heard some crazy things about her husband, but that's our family, so if, yep. if she loves him, then we love him. So he can come to our house and let's just do a weekend, you know? Let's just go out on the boat and have a good time. Yeah. So throughout the visit, Jones kept in regular contact with her mother, Mm -hmm. Mary Lou, as well as several friends. On the evening of September 13th, one of Jones' friends, Lisa Emmons, was scheduled to visit her house. However, Jones discouraged her from coming coming after reporting that the the Brands had an argument after, after drinking. After that night, Jones stopped answering telephone calls, which alarmed her acquaintances. Wow. Yeah. Yep. So so in her house, her guests got into an argument, and then she went, yeah, maybe don't come, because it's like weird tension right now. Is that what you're saying? I, I think it so. It was they, this, this Jones woman mm-hmm. that she invited, uh, what's this guy's name again? Charles? Oh. Yeah. Charles, Charles and Charles, his yeah. and his wife mm-hmm. to her house. Yep. 
And because of the hurricane. Somebody else. Oh, okay, yeah, okay. That's why. And then somebody else was supposed to come to get away from the hurricane, like a hurricane party. Like I a, think know. maybe she was just coming to visit. Okay, it was okay. just a friend of hers. And then to she visit. was like, you know, they're whew, they're going back and forth, so yeah. maybe don't. Yeah. And then no no more phone calls were answered. Yep. All right. Cool. Yep. Sounds regular. Yeah. On September fifteenth, another one of Jones' friends, Debbie Knight, came to her house to check on her while on the phone with Jones' mother. Oh. After finding the front door locked, Knight tried to enter the house through the garage, where she found Brant's decomposing body hanging from the rafters. Charles. Charles. Yeah. Wow. Oh, so then that was just... I. I okay, go ahead. Please yeah. go ahead. Knight uh, contacted the police, who entered the house, found the body of Brant's wife and niece. Oh. Terry had been stabbed seven times in the chest while reclining on the couch. Jones had been decapitated and disemboweled oh. with her heart and organs removed. Oh, my God. Jones' head was also placed next to her own body. The weapon used... Her what? Her own her body? He- oh, her head, oh, yeah. Oh. The weapons used in the crime had been knives from Jones' kitchen. He did that with some just some regular shit that you found in the kitchen? Yeah. Wow. So he killed them, did all this crazy shit that he does because he's a goddamn psychopath. Uh, and then he went in the garage and... And then hung himself. Coward. So and, and she saw the lady saw she him, saw him hanging, first. and and the mom, her Jones Jones's mom was on the phone. Yeah. Terry's mom was on the phone. Yeah, no, no, um, no, 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 no. Um, Mich- uh, Michelle, Michelle, Knight. Michelle, but she, but she's she, on the phone with Michelle's mom. Oh, with her own mom. Yeah. No, oh. no, 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 no. Oh, his Debbie wife, Knight. Debbie Knight. Debbie Knight is the friend that came to visit the house. Yes, was on the phone with Michelle's mom. Michelle is Michelle Jones. Is that yeah. Jones? Yeah. The the woman of the house. Yes. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. So you you could show up to your daughter. Somebody shows up to your daughter's house with you on the phone, mm-hmm. and then it's like, I gotta go. Charles is hanging in the garage, and it's like, you hang up and you gotta call the police. Yeah, that's gotta be like that hour or so of you waiting for to her to get back before the police come and you get that phone call to let you know what's going on in the yeah. house. That's, oh, that's I wonder if how I would have did it was I'd have been like did what. If I was on the phone, I'd oh, like, okay. I gotta call you right back. I wouldn't have said anything first. I yeah, like, I, was, I gotta call yeah, you back. Yeah. Don't even don't, don't even leave them in suspense. Like exactly, that. Yeah, yeah. Don't yeah. don't put that shit out yeah. there and be like, I gotta call. You oh back. my like, god, what? somebody's no. dead. What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> like, Fuck that. So, a search of Brant's residence on Big Pine Key uh-huh. revealed that he was a monthly subscriber, <laughs> a monthly subscriber for Victoria's Secret catalogs. Wow, had an extensive extensive like collection. it comes in his name. I guess. That's creepy. <laughs> That's creepy. Yeah. It's one thing if you like to check out your wives' magazines, uh, but you have a subscription to Victoria's Secret magazine. That's creepy as shit. It's Charlie. Yeah, Carl, Charlie. Charlie Car- Brandt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he had an ex- he had also had an extensive collection of surgery-themed books, oh. posters, and clippings, and regularly searched online for autopsy photos and snuff film websites, which mm. I don't know what that is. It's like, uh, remember Pain anything. Olympics? Oh. Pain Olympics was a snuff film. Shout out to anybody who's debaucherous enough to have the audacity to lay their eyes on the Pain Olympics. Oh, don't don't go. Oh, I'm not that. even going to go into detail about it. <laughs> you, if you if you know, you know. Yeah, exactly. If you don't, good. I won't even I won't even bring it into your life. But people are curious, so they. I don't gonna... think you can find that on the internet anymore. Oh, I'm sure you can. All right, I'm I, sure. I'm not it's... putting it. If you do, don't put it on the yeah, Facebook. Page. Please don't. Please don't. Uh. <laughs> Uh, yes, yeah, so a snuff film website um, depicting violence against women. Because Brant's murder of Jones indicated mythology and past experience, 
and because he traveled often due to his job, police checked cold cases in Florida that matched his apparent MO. Oh, yeah, I'm sure he wasn't just dormant for from 75 or whatever to mm-hmm. 2004. Yeah. Oh, he definitely did. Honey, I'll be back. I'm going to go run to the store and yep. then did some horrible shit, especially because in, in the keys, mm-hmm. first of all, it's pretty crazy because there's like a thousand keys. Because some of them are as big as Key West, where it's like a whole island and people live on them. But some keys are just little islands where like five people could stand on it. But they count it as a key. So it's like thousands of keys. And a lot of homeless people migrate towards that part of Florida. Mm -hmm. And people on the side of the road. So people got their own key? I mean, if you got money, you could probably, you know, buy a house. I I mean, build a house on a key. Oh, I thought you could just go. I mean, you might live in like Barracuda Key. I don't know all the key, but you might uh, live on Barracuda Key, but Barracuda Key is just like your house mm -hmm. and uh, your neighbor's house. You can do that? That's cool. Yeah, I mean, mean, you might not be able to own the key, but you could just, you could buy, you could put Uh, land on the key. So what do you got? Get by boat? Is it like, is it like really Well, no, it's not that. Some of them are. Some of them are like in the distance, but Uh some of them are like, you know, like I, when you're in Key West, you can go from Key West to like another key is like, you know, four, 45 minutes away. Some of them are t- 20 minutes away, depending on which way you go. It's just, it's just it's real crazy. It's, it's a cool part. of hmm. It's a cool place to go. But that's it's so many vagrants and like people, you know, just looking to get away like less. My, my friend mm-hmm. less like he just moved down there one day. It's just a lot of lost souls and free spirits like gravitate towards the keys. OK. And it's a lot of homeless people down there. That's cool. So it's. Ample bodies to just like destroy. I'm sure he had. I'm sure he had a bunch of cold cases that fit that description. Yeah. Uh. So yeah. So. Mm, okay. And launch. I said they had the cold cases of Florida that matched his mo, and launch requests for similar inquiries in the United States and abroad. Ultimately, the search linked Brant to 26 unsolved murders in yeah. Florida. Dating yeah. back to 1973. Yeah. So he never stopped. 26. He never stopped. That night, that 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 uh, that uh play night that we just created, he left that date and murdered somebody. Oh, right after he most likely. Uh, went on a date with that lady. He probably married. did that. He probably killed a couple before he met her. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, I mean, 26 people, that means he was consistently killing people from 73 till 2004. Yeah. Um. So, Carol Sullivan... Who was one of his victims? 1978, Sullivan age, she was 12. Wow. Was abducted from a school bus in Volusia, Volusia County. Volusia? Oh, oh, I don't know. Mm-hmm. That's in Florida? Shit, if I know. Oh, yeah, I don't know that. Yeah, it's in Florida. On September 20th, 1978, her skull was found inside a bucket, leading oh. authorities to presume she was murdered and decapitated. Wow. Brant was 20 years old and lived in that county at the time but could not be tied to the crime in any other way. So he went from shooting his parents to just doing straight up Hannibal Lecter shit. Well, he did that before he killed his parents because he was... Oh, no, no, no. She was 12. I got that fucked up. Yeah, you're right. You're right. That's wild. That's a hell of a progression. Yeah. Um, So Lisa Saunders, in 1988, Saunders, age 20, was beaten, stabbed, and dragged from her car in Big Pine Key in December 1988. Her heart was missing... When she was found, but it's wow. unclear if it was extracted from, it was extracted by the attacker or eaten by a vulture. And that's where they ended up laying their head when they got married. Is in Big Pine Key, right? Yep. Wow. Yeah. Um, so I know this little place, man. A lot of dark alleys. It's it's a, it's, a, it's a cool part of town. We should move there, sweetie. <laughs> uh, Police sh- don't bother you, right? Sherry Parisho, nineteen eighty nine, 
Parishal's partly clothed body was found on July 16, 1989, near the North Pine Channel Bridge at Big Pine Key, where Parishal, who was home was homeless, lived on a on a dinghy. Mm-hmm. Her throat had been her throat had been slashed and her head had been nearly severed. Like Jones, wow. her body was extreme was extensively mutilated and her heart was removed. Come on, yeah. Um, Parish was found less than a thousand feet from her from where Brent lived. Um, Brent matched a composite sketch of a man seen crossing U.S. Route One near where Parisho was discovered on the night she was murdered. Based on the evidence. In Moreau County, investigators determined that Brent killed Parisho and officially closed the case on Mar- on May 6, 2006. Where were y'all when he did it? I don't know. They had a sketch. A thousand like, feet from his house? Like, y'all have a sketch, but then y'all just don't. First of all, I would wager that maybe 450 people live on Big Pine Key. Mm-hmm. Like, these keys aren't big. It's not a lot, a ton of people living on these keys. Mm-hmm. So, like, how about you look into the people that live there? Oh, this guy killed his parents? Maybe we should, like, he should be a suspect, you know, that we look into. Right. No, he's cool. I get beers with him sometimes. He's cool. He's a good guy. <laughs> Darling Tola, 1995. Tola was a prostitute from Miami whose body, whose body missing her head and heart wow. was found near the highway wrapped in plastic. Brent used the same highway regularly, and he kept a mileage record of his travels, which shows an entry of 100 miles, the driving distance between Big Pine Key and Miami on the day of her murder. Wow. So, and then I think the murder for Sherry was um, the murder of his wife. I read that in another article that she she had a clue that he he did that one. And they didn't have any kids or anything, right? Like, what? Uh, no. Was he piping down? I don't know. But before... Yeah, you had a clue. What was keeping you there? I don't know. Maybe she thought he murdered her. I don't know. But I guess before he murdered... You know, before he murdered her and his niece, I think she probably told somebody that. I think he's out there. Because they said that the wife had an idea that he may he might have been with Maybe that's what the argument shit. was at the house. Uh, maybe. Oh, you want to go out in the middle of a hurricane? You want to go out in the middle of a hurricane, Charles? To what? Kill women? <laughs> you animal? And they're like, uh, hey, <laughs> Lady Jones is like, hey, uh, don't come here. Yeah. It's it. Something it's crazy. That's the opposite she should have did. She'd be like, hey, you come, come here, here everybody. Now. Bring everybody here. <laughs> Bring them all here. Come here ASAP. Yeah, bring everybody here. Yeah, so that was uh my first murder, Charlie Brandt. Wow. Yeah. Um I guess that was less gr- gruesome than your last week's story. <laughs> that was dark, man. That was like that just felt, you know, it was giving me these real uh felt like a horror movie. You mm-hmm. know, like this dude just kinda operating in society, just chopping people up and doing just don't even stuff. know. Like yeah, you just wow. and like if, if you hear stories like that, and like imagine what could be going on right now, bro. Like we just and we won't know. We just watched a pretty crazy yeah. documentary. I've been thinking about that for days. Yeah, and we won't even know until like about twenty, thirty know. years yeah. down the line. I've been thinking about what we don't know for like <laughs> five days now. That's insane. Um, yeah, insane. Charlie Brandt. Yep, that was bananas, crazy as hell. I can't believe. You know, you can speak into this. What? The power of a parent's love. Like, there has to be a point of something Sophia would do where you have to go like, I mean, I gotta, I gotta wipe my hand. I mean, what, what can I, what, you know, like, it's, it's something, right? Oh, you want to know what it, what it would be? Yeah. Is it just not even understand? I I know I don't understand it, but like, it would, it would take for Sophia to 
shoot and kill her mom and try to shoot me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Point blank, period. That's, it's done. It's done after that. He then went, you know what, man? You made an accident. You can come back and live with me again. Uh, I would never. I would no never sir. trust you around me or my other children ever again. That's it. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, that's crazy, right? I know I'm not a parent, but, like, that was stupid for that dad to do that, right? That's it. I mean, you put him in a foster care, so I'm sorry, but, like, you are not, you obviously don't respect our blood that we share the same, you don't respect that, so, like, you gotta go. Yeah, you tried to kill, you tried to take me out. I'm a widow. <laughs> I'm a widow now. Yeah, you, you killed my wife. You tried to take me out. That's mm. crazy as shit, man. Yeah. All right, well, we're gonna take a quick break, and when we come back, I'm gonna close out the show, so stay tuned. All right, folks, and we are back. I know we mentioned it before, but uh, as far as those uh, iTunes reviews go, keep them coming. We've been loving them. We're up to like 111 now. It just keeps moving. Uh, it, it feels good to, you know, get the feedback. But again, that's not what we're about when it comes to that. It's the weird algorithm. It will help us in some kind of weird way, we believe. So, you know, just keep them coming. Thank you guys very much again for doing those. Frank, are, are they five stars, though? Some of them are. Okay. We have gotten some reviews that say like, hey, man, don't do this. Hey, man, you know, maybe don't talk about this. And it's like, eh, well, you know. Hey, man, don't. I'm not going to say it. Yeah, you know, <laughs> if you if you feel that way, you're entitled to your opinion. Yeah, of course. And, and we will try to continue, like, you know, to produce the best show that we can. And um, that's all I got to say about it, you know. Yep. If, you, if you genuinely have an awful experience listening to our podcast i would prefer if you maybe just not didn't listen but if you really feel like you need to go hey man your podcast it sucks shit and one star and you should both kill yourselves and yeah. throw your mics in the garbage can like if you really feel like you need to say that i mean it's america so like <laughs> feel free to f have free speech but like or just go listen to another podcast it's like you know? why though it's like <laughs> i've been on some people's like people share reviews like uh, on the in the twitter podcast community where uh, they're like look at this one i got this like one star. First of all, you sound like a stupid bitch. You don't know yeah, what you're talking just... about, and your voice makes me want to shoot myself in the mouth. So how about you throw all your shit away and maybe go get a job sucking dicks? And it's like, wow, you wrote that? All right, well, you know. And we haven't got anything like that, because I promise you, if you write that to us, I'm going to find you. <laughs> and you can throw me these hands. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. If you want to get disrespectful to those levels, then you gotta. You owe me a five. You owe me five minutes in a bathroom, bare knuckles. <laughs> period. Don't ever disrespect me like that. Anyway, uh, Fran, well, are you ready for my affirmative murder this yeah, week? Yeah, I am. All right, cool. Um, my story uh, is actually. Oh, I want to give. I want to give props. I want to give props. I, uh, I always like to give props. My story was actually an emailed recommendation from a lady named Lori. Okay. Okay. So shout out to you, Lori. Thank you for hitting us up at affirmativemurder at gmail .com. If ever we get multiple stories, I will pass them to Fran for advisory sake. But because one came in and I was strapped, I went ahead and picked this one for myself. And this is the story I did this week. So uh, my story, my affirmative murder this week is the story of Lawrence T. Horn. Um, does that sound familiar? We haven't done it. I just want to make sure. No. Mm -mm. Okay, cool. So uh, this is the story of Lawrence T. Horn. I got this story from uprocks.com. It's like a music website. Mm -hmm. And uh, all right, here we go. It was September 16th, 1985. Doctors struggled to insert a tracheotomy tube back into Trevor Horn's throat. It had almost been an hour, and the 13-month-old with underdeveloped lungs was suffering from a severe lack of oxygen. If it took any longer for the staff at the Children's Hospital National Medical Center to reinsert the tube, he would die. 
Finally, after an hour of work, the tube was back in place. Unfortunately, the damage was already done. Trevor, the son of famed Motown producer and engineer Lawrence Horn, was a quadriplegic. Crime can have many points of origin. This is just one. All right, so here we go. So now I'm going to set the scene. We're in Motown, Detroit. It's the 1960s, okay? Feel that music. Mm, feel those vibes. You know? Feel that. Feel that. Are you ready? Okay. Detroit was rocking. Barry Gordy Jr. had turned the city into an experience of American music in the early 1960s with acts like T The Temptations and The Supremes. Hitsville, USA, a nickname for Motown, had taken hold, and the company had radio and record companies noticing their star power. One of the first talents that Gordy hired to work at Motown wasn't a soulful singer or a house band. It was a Navy veteran with a knack for electrical engineering, Lawrence T. Horn. Lawrence Horn, otherwise known as LT, had spun records abroad, mm, spun records aboard aircraft carriers during his time in the Navy. He had also honed his skills with electronics, so when he was looking for a job after being discharged, Barry snatched him up. LT was a natural. Combining his musical and technical talent, he became Motown's premier engineer, pioneering vocal mixing processes that are still being used today. So basically, this dude was like a... Uh, early stages not Pharrell but whoever Pharrell is like yo call such and such and have him mix this up and make it sound clean and take all the pauses out and get the shit sounding right and he was like the best at that during the Motown movement which was mm -hmm. like I mean any kind of 70s 60s vibes you can think of mm -hmm. they came out of the Motown yeah. records and Barry Gordy and he was a part of that whole thing and this guy had his hand on all of that shit so he mm -hmm. was he was really good at what he did Horn, the chief engineer on My Girl, was on fire. He was behind the boards for, for hits from Marvin Gaye, Smokey Robinson, Diana Ross, and Stevie Wonder. He even helped build the 8-track recording machine, and his bank account reflected all his hard work. Mm. By the end of the 1970s, Motown had amassed over 100 top 10 hits, Dang. and Horn helped perfect the sound on almost all of them. The studio belonged to Horn, and he made sure all of the knobs and faders were under his control. In 1972, Horn was flying first class when he met an airline stewardess by the name of Mildred Marie. Horn was married at the time, but when he met Mildred, he was smitten. By 1973, Horn and Mildred were married, and he kicked that girl out. You know, he got her out. Of, you know, got her by there. He was like, "Look, this lady that flies on these planes, that's the one. So you got to go. Whatever your name is, she wasn't even mentioned in the story. So <laughs> he got her up out of there. Uh, actually, no, I'm sorry. Her name's Juana." You got to go, Juana. Uh, so Juana, he kicked, kicked Juana to the curb, got with Mildred, and they were married by 1973. Mildred? Yeah, Mildred. Very old name. <laughs> Imagine meeting like a six-year-old person named Mildred. It's weird. Yeah, you know. It's like a, you know, our friend Earl, like mm -hmm. a six-year-old named Earl, that's a strong name for a child, you know. It's a very old name. Um, by 1973, Horn and Mildred were married, and the two bought a home in San Diego. Horn would split his time between San Diego and L.A., where Motown had moved the headquarters. Hmm. And in 1974, the couple had their first child, Tiffany. Things got rocky between Mildred and Horn. The couple's relationship was strained, and in 1979, Mildred and Tiffany relocated to Washington, D.C., while Horn continued his work with Motown in L.A. In 1981, Mildred filed for divorce. But even though the even through this strenuous time, Horn and Mildred would still occasionally see each other. Uh-uh, uh, uh you know. 
you know. <laughs> uh, three years after they, after she filed for divorce, Mildred and Lawrence prematurely gave birth to twins, hmm. Tamil and Trevor. After three weeks, Tamil was released into her mother's care in Silver Spring, Maryland, but hmm. Trevor would have to stay much longer. He was born with under, underdeveloped lungs and needed to be placed on life support. The incident with the tracheotomy tube occurred shortly thereafter. Unable to sustain the most basic motor functions, doctors were skeptical that Trevor would survive. Horn and Mildred's relationship had been distressed for years, but the troubled birth and the subsequent near-death experience of their son had completely destroyed their frail bond, which I would think that would bring you closer together. Yeah. But, I don't. again, I don't have kids, man, so... I can, I, I can see it breaking them up if they were still together. It caused, you know, a little bit of... You but, know. like, uh, they're already... A, Broken up. That's, so, what, that's yeah, what I'm saying. So, so it didn't work relationship-wise, right. and then they messed around and had a kid, and now you have to try to uh, cooperate with a person who you you couldn't cooperate on the most simplest things, mm-hmm. like groceries and what time y'all you want to have sex or who's paying the bills. And now you have to go, oh, our kid is like a paraplegic. So yeah. I, I can understand the communication skills not being the strongest on that and being like, Yo, fuck you, Mildred. So since the kid was sick, they wasn't they wasn't trying to cooperate together. Since the kid was sick, it made it, their relationship worse. worse like it worse. was it, the arguments. Yeah, it just was a new thing to argue about. But like I said, that's just being selfish. Like it's not about you guys. You have to. You have a sick child here. Oh, for sure. I mean, like, come on. I understand. Well, I don't understand, but you know, you get I, it. You know, I, yeah, I get it. In 1987, their divorce had finally been settled and all three of their children moved in with Mildred. Due to the negligence at the children's hospital, the Horns won a $2 million lawsuit. The bulk of the money was placed in a trust fund to pay for Trevor's medical bills, but Mildred was was rewarded $250,000, while Horn was gifted $125,000. So I would assume, you know, they they all got a little bit of cut from the Mm -hmm. settlement, but most of the money, $2 million, went into a trust to help pay for... Um, Trevor's medical bills mm-hmm. so that's cool after Barry Gordy sold Motown in 1988 which he sold it for like 61 million dollars so I don't know what that is Shit, in 1988 money but let's I mean I would think it's 100 million you know mm. but that still is pretty crazy that seems like short change because those songs like you know Mr. Postman and this and, was know, in the 70s this was in 88 when 80s. he sold it you know Michael Jackson had left and you know all these artists cause you know Barry Gordy was doing some shiesty shit like he 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 was like keeping your royalties. No, I didn't so you cut a record and he would be like, "That was a great song, man. Here's fifteen hundred dollars, Diana Ross," and she'd be like, "Thanks, man, I appreciate it." And he'd go make millions of dollars off the record, but you can't get any more money than what he gave you up front. Wow, for singing the song. He sold it for sixty-one million dollars. Sixty-one million dollars in nineteen eighty-eight. <laughs> so I think well, we can call that a hundred million dollars. Oh With inflation, yeah. we we can call that a hundred million dollars. So, he, but that's that's the kind of money that's like. I'm good. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, it's a lot of money, but that's not, like, generational money. Mm-hmm. I guess it is. I'm being stupid. I don't have... I wish I had $100 million. That's crazy. But I don't know. Those songs are just so timeless and so feel-good and Marvin Gaye music and Diana Ross and the Supremes and all this kind of stuff. It just feels like $60 million just doesn't... That doesn't feel like enough. enough. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean... Jackson I, I might, 5 was in Motown, right? You Jackson 5 before, was like, in Motown, yeah. yeah. And then Michael Jackson, right before he went solo... He was on Motown for a little bit, but then Quincy Jones snatched him up. Oh, yeah. Quincy Jones came in and was like, listen, babe, Michael, fuck this guy, Barry Gordy. He's a scam artist. 
he can suck a dick. Let's go make our own music, baby. Mm-hmm. Thriller, baby. And then he got him up out of there. That's why the I always town. get those two mixed up. Oh, Quincy Jones and Barry Gordy? Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, people still like Quincy Jones. Barry Gordy sold Motown and was like, well, I'm done, and was, re- like, retired. I Never sh- tried I a second. Too. Same. <laughs> <laughs> Same. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, after Barry Gordy sold Motown in 1988, Horn was no longer polishing records for some of the finest music talent. He was now filing tapes as a librarian, Whoa. standing firm as one of the company's last relics from a once great dynasty. The change, oh, that changed in 1990 when he was fired. He wasn't building, he wasn't creating, he was merely surviving. Lawrence Horn had gone from from manning the boards to manning the tapes in a basement. Wait, wait, wait. So, you might not have this information. Did he get anything after Barry Gordy sold? No. He didn't get shit. No, he just was an engineer. So his job was just... His job, he got paid by making people's songs better. Once Barry Gordy sold Motown to whoever they sold it to, they, they were like, "We don't need you to. We don't know you. Like it's new turnover. We. It's I'm not Barry Gordy. Yeah, I'm not Barry Gordy. I don't know you. I have a guy that mixes our songs, so you can go work in the basement, and we'll keep you on the payroll. But even then, it was like somebody came and was like, "Hey, uh, LT, you're fired." Wow. And he's like. I worked on Diana Ross's first. You know, he he didn't go quietly. I worked on Diana Ross's first album. You gonna do this to me? And then they like the security took him out. He had to put his, all his belongings in a box. That's insane. And now he was no longer. He went from working like what I can only compare to is if you were like a part of Drake's entourage, like uh-huh. in the OVO, and you're a number one records every summer and doing all this kind of stuff. And then Drake is just like, yeah, man, I'm retiring from rap. So and he's like, but you're gonna like put me through with like some other rappers, big rappers, right? And let them know I can get down. No, nah, man, I'm just done. I don't rap anymore. And, That's um, crazy. Good luck. And now you're like, hey, uh, P. Diddy, you know, I used to work with Drake. It's like, ah, well, Drake's not, doesn't make music anymore. So um, get out of my face. Wow. You know, yeah. So he went from, you know, making, putting his, putting his touches and changing the uh, audio up and putting this down on Stevie Wonder records and Diana Ross records and Smokey Robinson records to, Filing tapes in a basement, and you get fired from doing that, and you get fired from doing that. That'll make you fucking dick. Oh yeah, you'd be like, <laughs> I used to, I used to fly first, I used to fly first class. That's the insane. wife. I, I, I bagged my wife as me with a five thousand dollars suit on in a first class seat, and yeah. she just wanted to be down with the team. That's how much of a high profile lifestyle I was living, and now I work in a basement. Wow. And it only gets worse from there. I haven't even gotten into how shitty his life became. Mm. Um. And this this Uproxx article was not nice to him at all, which he doesn't deserve it when I get to what I'm saying. Okay. So, yeah. So, uh, the former golden couple of Motown were now locked in a heated battle over child support and custody of Trevor. Horn owed Mildred $16,875 in overdue child support. Wow. And by 1992, that $125,000 gift that he was awarded had dried up. He was barely working as a freelance computer repairman and living in a cheap L.A. apartment with his girlfriend. Just as just to make ends meet, Horn had to borrow sixty five thousand dollars from his mother, Pauline, who had to borrow the money herself from a family member who was an actor on a different world. This is a very 90s part of the story. Like, I don't know if it was Dwayne Wayne or, 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 you know, uh, you know, uh. Uh, I don't remember all the characters from a different Amazing. world. You His know? mom, she, whoever her friend was, is a great friend. Yeah, well, it's, it's family. 
Oh, okay. It uh, is family, okay. but still. I'm like, Aunt Pauline, you want how much money? That's a lot of money. 65 grand? <laughs> and then to be like, yeah, well, you know, Lawrence um, is behind on this child support payment. And? But yeah. Well, <laughs> that's why you need it? I thought you were sick. Oh, no. I'd have been like, oh, no. Then no. Then no, you can't have my money. <laughs> he didn't give me shit when he had Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, one time I asked him, could I just meet Diana Ross? He told me to suck his dick. He told me that to my face. He said, suck my dick. You know, and you want me to give him 65 grand? This would have been me. In my hypothetical, I'd have been like, nah, you didn't. I didn't meet Michael Jackson through you. I had to get on a different world to meet Michael Jackson. Lawrence. It was a good show, but I can't remember all the It's been a while. Oh, yeah. Whitley man. was one. Yeah, and Dwayne Wayne. He had the flip glass. Anyway. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so he, he owed... Uh, he owed sixteen thousand dollars in back child support, man. That's that's in the nineties. So mm. again, with inflation, call that thirty. Mm. You know, just c- couldn't pay it. His job wasn't paying him the money that his lifestyle used to be. So that's crazy. I know that apartment. I wish I had a camera in that apartment. If you you go from the life he was living, now you're in a shitty LA apartment with a new girlfriend, and you're like, you know, I used to you talking shit like, you know, I used to fucking. You know, cut records with Stevie Wonder. Like, yeah, Larry, I know. Right, just tell that story. Where's the rent money? I mean, anybody would, though. <laughs> oh, you yeah. do that, and you, that's the only story you got to tell? And now you're a loser? <laughs> you're a loser. All that money you make, and you're not saving anything? Like, He probably was like, Motown's on top, baby. It's going to be like this forever. forever. Yeah. You know, and then now look at you now. You have to be a computer repairman living in a shitty oh, L.A. apartment, man. telling old, old happy stories from when your life was great. Man, that's a- damn, homie. In <laughs> high school, you was, was the man, man homie. homie. Yeah. That's rough, man. <laughs> All right. Uh, Horn had nothing. Actually, he had less than nothing. He had debt. <laughs> he had debt. He had debt. That's worse. Than, <laughs> I'd rather have no money than be in debt and have no money. You could, I, you know. You, money you get ain't yours. Exactly. You know, it's, oh, that's, that's rough. That's a rough one. That's rough. <laughs> oh, man. No, thank you. Yeah, so the biggest asset he had was Trevor. After Trevor and Mildred, Horn would be next in line to receive the malpractice money. He had a plan. He was going to go back to where it all started, back to Motown, back to Detroit, where he used to sit at a big, expensive mixing board, shining up vocals for Diana Ross, the Jackson 5, and the Four Tops. In the spring of 1992, Thomas Turner heard heard a knock on his door in his Detroit home. It was his cousin, Lawrence Horn. Horn told Turner about his money issues, about the overdue child support payments and the narrow LA apartment he was relegated to and how Mildred had all the money and he had none. And the $1.7 million trust fund in Trevor's name. I'd have been like, look, man, it's late. Like you coming in here telling me all just unloading on somebody. Can you imagine somebody knocking on your door at like 8 o'clock at night and just coming in and being like, man, you know, my ex-wife is a bitch, man, and I'm poor now. And I'm like, Larry, you used to send me photos in the Mail Express of you at poolside parties with <laughs> Diana Ross. I just feel this guy feels like a guy that was not humble about the money he was oh, making. Oh, no. You know, I he's like, this guy, uh, tra- this guy, uh, what's his name? Terrence. Terrence, was that his name? I think so. No, his, this guy Thomas is like. Oh, Thomas. This guy Thomas is like, Larry, I live in Detroit. One time, the whole Jackson 5 had a concert, and I asked you for decent seats. And you told me to suck your dick, man. 
And now you come into my house and you unloading about what was me? I'm poor now. Mm-hmm. I've been poor. Why didn't you get me Jackson Five tickets? I'm, I'd be like, I feel like a lot of people have some animosity towards Larry. Yeah. But anyway, so he came over to um to his cousin's house, Thomas, and told him about all this kind of stuff and the trust fund money and all this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Turner handed Horn a business card, one that had the phrase, the phrases "spiritual advisor" and "house of wisdom" printed on it. It was for a self-described minister named James Edward Perry. Give Perry, give Mister Perry a call. Turner said to his cousin. He helps people. It was the summer of 1992 and Lawrence Horn wanted to see his son. He asked his eldest child, Tiffany, if she wouldn't mind videotaping Trevor in his bedroom where he was hooked up to a respirator every night. Sensing the longing of a parent for a child he barely saw, she obliged. In town from Detroit, on his way to pick up Tiffany from Mildred's house in Silver Spring, Horn was doing some filming of his own. The trip from downtown Washington, D.C. to Silver Spring, Maryland is roughly 30 minutes, is roughly a 30 minute drive. And using a rented van with a mounted camera, Horn filmed the entire trip. When he arrived at his ex-wife's home where she lived with their children, he filmed that too. Every inch of the outside perimeter, the driveway and the address posted on the front. Thomas Turner, meanwhile, continued to be a bridge of communication between Perry and his cousin Horn. He sent something nefarious was going on between the two. I got to thinking. I was brought into something and I didn't know exactly what. Turner would later testify. I had my suspicions. I approached Mr. B- Mr. Perry and I told him that whatever business he had with my cousin, they should conduct it between themselves. <laughs> there was one more videotape Horn needed to create, though, before he and Perry's plan could come to fruition. A jury watched as a documentary for Miles Davis blasted onto the screen. After a few short moments of the jazz legend blowing on his trumpet, the image cut to something else. The inside of a Hollywood Boulevard apartment. It was Horns. He was manning the camera, making sure to tape himself, his girlfriend, and even the time and date on the rolling channel guide scrolling away on his TV screen. Remember the TV guide channel? Yeah. Man, that's just... Some things you just can't even explain to kids today. I think they still have that, though. Why? It's, I think old people use it. They still have TV Guide books. Wow, are you serious? My grandma get those, yeah. Wow. It's called, like, TV Guide. It was 11.03 p.m., March 2nd, 1993. On the other side of the country, in Silver Spring, Maryland, the second half of the plan was about to commence. Perry had done his homework. For $30, he was able to purchase a book published titled Hitman a technical manual for independent contractors. So basically this dude bought Hitman for dummies and read the book (laughs) and then read the book. And then this is what followed. Um, So he ordered it from a mail order catalog. He followed the literature closely. He filed off the serial numbers as well as part of the gun barrel of a 22 caliber AK 47 rifle that he had acquired along with affixing a silencer to the end of the weapon. What happened next also followed the details laid out in the book. It was sometime after 2 a.m. at the home in the Northgate Drive cul-de-sac where Mildred and the, and the children lived. Trevor Horn was in his nursery, hooked up to his respirator that served as his lifeline. Sitting next to him was Janice Saunders, his caregiver. Perry snuck in through the basement window. He found his first victim, Mildred, at the base of the stairs. He shot her in the head three times Damn. with one bullet traveling through her right eye. <laughs> 
Wow. He then made his way undetected to the nursery where Trevor and Saunders were located. Bursting into the room, he shot Saunders twice in the head at close range, Mm. once in the left eye. This method of killing, shooting someone at close range and in the eyes, is described in the book Hitman as a certain way to ensure quick and sure death. Oh, so that's what he was aiming for. Yeah. He was like, he treated this like, uh, what do you like, black gloves on? Oh, yeah, I'm sure he was like, (laughs) I'm an assassin, I own a book, I paid $30 for it, and... he Got was using suit. surgical accuracy. Though, to black shoot, suit. Yeah, he's shooting somebody. And I had a duster on, you know. <laughs> and um, he shot he shot these people in their eyes, man, because a book told him to do it. Wow. So, wow, yeah. That's pretty accurate. That's very accurate. I mean, it was close range. And also, it's like people living in a one person taking care of it. They weren't expecting. You didn't bust into a cartel, uh, a kingpin's house. Mm. You shot a woman who's a, a stewardess and a woman who takes care of paraplegic people. So I'm sure I'm sure Mildred was sleepy, and I'm sure the other lady was actually asleep. Mm-hmm. You know, just in case Trevor needed to wake up in the middle of the night, she was sitting bedside. Mm-hmm. So he probably walked up, just up to her close and just shot her. I'm sure it wasn't like some kind of slick move, and he had to fight, and then you know. But I you picture know. you just bust out the doors, Pff, roll, did a barrel roll. Yeah, and it was an AK, so it wasn't even like oh, a, it, wasn't, a it wasn't even like a pistol. It was oh. a, an assault rifle weapon. He put a a silence on that. Yeah, I'm sure it was very loud. Still, that's crazy. But wow, yeah, these weren't these he, weren't. He got low. He got. We went overboard. Yeah, it's like <laughs> bro, I didn't ask you to kill the president. He really, you know, Jeez. I'm sure he had the gloves on. Went out of fucking double barrels, fucking sniper rifles, yeah. crazy. Like, what are you doing? Taking a deep breath, <sighs> like before you shoot. <sighs> Using a scope to shoot somebody five feet away. Yeah, like, I mean, what are you? yeah, <laughs> but I mean, to a certain extent, it worked. I'm gonna get into it, but like the the way they got caught was more on Lawrence's side than Perry's side. Mm-hmm. So uh, Perry hovered over Trevor's body, the child laying in a crib among several stuffed toys. With gloved hands, Perry placed one hand over the tracheotomy opening in his throat and the other over his nose and mouth. At 7.30 a.m., Mildred's sister and neighbor came into the home. The loud alarm on the disconnected respirator echoing throughout the house. Trevor Horn, Mildred Horn, and Janice Sanders were dead. And a single blade of grass lay on Trevor's cheek. Perry, in all his wisdom that he gained from the book, left no discernible or traceable evidence at the scene of the crime. Uh, And this... uh. This 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 made this made me laugh a little bit only because I imagined it in a certain kind of way. So this right this is a quote from Lawrence right. So he goes, uh, <laughs> "I guess the police have to do their job, uh, <laughs> but I just want this to be over because this has been a nightmare." And I imagine him having like a fur coat on and and this is who this, this is, is Lawrence. Lawrence, this, okay. Yeah, this is Lawrence. He's, you know, I picture him having like a fur coat on because he's like, "I'm about to get fucking paid when this money comes through for the uh, from that trust." So he's like. He was a suspect, and they're interviewing him, but he's like, you know, I guess the police have to do their job, but I just want this to be over. Hey, what's up, man? Oh, yeah, I'm good. Oh, yeah, no, no, I, I, okay, now. All right, now. I, I, I'll contact you. Okay, now. All right, now. <laughs> All right. What was that? What was that you said? Yeah, no, oh, no, yeah, my, my kid uh, being dead and my ex-wife, you know, uh, we had our problems, but um, it's very tragic. I just want this to be over, you know. Thank you. He's like, oh, uh, is this uh, y'all done recording? Okay, uh, what time is this gonna be on? You know, I like to see myself on TV. All right, now, I just, all right, now, y'all, y'all take it easy now. Goodbye. 
That's what I picture. Just, just really, this guy, I don't like this guy. The things money will make you do, especially if you was living that life at one point. Yeah, you're like, I need to get this back. That's insane. I need to get this back. I will hire somebody to murder my child and my ex-wife to get them out of my way so I can get that money. Just to live that lifestyle. you like, oh, you live that type of lifestyle and they'd be like, I need this. It's like, the it's same, well, it's drug, the same like, thing that happens on like some of the episodes that we do where it's like, and this guy had a kid that he didn't want to have, so the only solution to that was to kill the child. It's like, no, no, there's an, a thousand other things to do besides that. You know, <laughs> there's a thousand other things to do besides that. So this was like, I'm sure he was like, man, I owe Mildred a lot of money. If she's dead, I don't have to pay her the money. And also, if she's dead, that's one less person in my way to get the money. And then if Trevor's dead, I get all the money immediately. Well, I need money, so I guess I just got to kill them both. It's like, like that's what? your only option? Yeah, it's like, what? <laughs> what kind of math did you yeah, do just like, now? He did that. He definitely <laughs> did this math in a room by himself because there's nobody there to go. Or, like, maybe try to get a better job or something, you know? Like, or, you know, or don't do that. Right. So, yeah, there was nobody there to, like, make him understand that that's a really bad idea. That's insane. Um, little did Horn know, investigators were acqu- acquiring a mountain of evidence against him. First, police found a piece of paper in Horn's pocket on the night of the killings. The flight numbers and the times written on the paper corresponded with the flight Mildred was scheduled to work on the day she died. So he was he was tracking her schedule and he kept the paper. Mm-hmm. What an idiot, you know. Um, about a week after the murders, a flight attendant who worked with Mildred contacted the Montgomery County Police Department and told them that Mildred had feared that her ex-husband would try to kill her. On March 12th, along, along with videotapes that Horn made, police seized computers, audio cassettes, computer discs. Man, it's a lot of old uh, <laughs> things that just people don't... Floppy disks? Floppy disks. Yeah, it's like, yeah, wow. This is a very uh, outdated story. Um, so they collected all those things and more. Receipts showed that Horn had made several trips between Maryland and Perry's native Detroit. Then there was a phone call that Horn made to Mildred on the night of the murders. The police found it suspicious that Horn would call solely to check on the whereabouts of the other two kids mere hours before the slangs. Their conclusion was that he wanted to make sure that they were not there when Perry arrived. Mm-hmm. So basically he called like, uh, hey, Mildred, uh, yeah, yeah, I know, fuck me, you hate me. Um, where is uh, Tiffany and, uh, uh, I think her name was like Trelane or something like that. Where are the girls? And she's like, well, they're out. Okay, cool, bye. So, uh, uh, <laughs> why did he, <laughs> why did he, that's weird. Right. You know, that's a weird phone call to make. That same search of Horm's apartment also turned up another highly incriminating piece of evidence, a hand-drawn map of the Northgate Drive where Mildred lived. So he drew out her street and, like, her, like, house. He had a map, basically, of her house. But he remembered the the scratch off the serial number and... This is Lawrence. This isn't Perry. Oh, okay. Perry did that with his gun. Oh, okay. But he, Perry he wore still guns. Kept, he still kept the... Like, what he do you kept everything. <laughs> I don't know why he did that. He's stupid, man. This guy's stupid. This guy isn't very smart. Um, so uh, wow. authorities had all they needed to place wiretaps on Horn's phone in California. 
Meanwhile, Horn was trying desperately to access the money that he was due to inherit from Trevor's estate. But his plan hit a snag. His daughter Tiffany, along with two of Mildred's sisters, blocked him from obtaining the inheritance under Maryland's Slayer Rule. Mm, good. The law disqualifies a person who feloniously and intentionally kills another person from benefiting from the estate, insurance proceeds, or property of the descendant. And uh, such a person also may not benefit from the estate, insurance proceeds, or property of the descendant. Why is... Sometimes you say a word in series like, did you say, did you ask me something? Said, Get the fuck out of here, man. Uh, basically, in short, Horn couldn't access the money and Perry couldn't get his part of the reward for the killings. Hmm. So now you're in a real sticky situation because you hired a hitman right. and he has three bodies and you told him you were getting $2 million and you don't have it now. I want my money. Yeah. He wants his money and you want your money. So you like, <laughs> yeah, man, I told all these bill collectors I'd have their money by Friday. Right. Uh, I, I need this. And they use this law, the Slayer rule to be like, uh-uh, hold up. Wait a minute, Mr. Postman. You can't have this money. And you can fuck off because we know what you did. Mm. Um, Sick. Yeah. So authorities knew that because of his financial situation, Horn had plenty of motive to have Mildred and Trevor killed. They just needed more evidence, and the wiretaps and the phone records pr provided just that. Police recorded several instances of Perry and Horn talking over the phone, but it was a phone call on the night of the murders that helped the serial to help seal their fate. A phone call to Horn's apartment was made from a Montgomery, Maryland, days in, roughly thirty, roughly a thirty-minute drive from Silver Spring, Maryland, where the murders occurred. Perry had been efficient and skilled in conducting the murders, but he made a fatal mistake. He registered at the Days Inn with his actual driver's license. Wow. So they could put him at the Days Inn, and they could put a phone call from the Days Inn to Lawrence's house the night of the murder. So that's it. You're, you know, And then that Days Inn is only 30 minutes from Silver Spring, and then that same night of that phone call from that Days Inn, Mildred and Trevor are dead. Mm -hmm. So it's like... Why, don't you live in Detroit? Why are you in Silver Spring, Maryland? Right. You know, I wanted to see D.C. and just take the... Yeah, all right, man. Like, put, as some way you, your some way you're going to slip up. Like, Yeah, but that is a really dumb way to slip up. Yeah, but that's... He did all this other stuff. <laughs> there was no evidence of DNA, nothing at the thing. All you had to do was wow. go stay at a go stay at a pay-by-day a pay by day motel. You're going to fuck up somewhere. With cash. No, nah, man, you know, gonna I, I'm not going to stay at just any old place. I really like Days and I'm a Days and Rewards member, so I get bonus points. I need I, the points. Yeah, I need the points. So, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and get my points. I'm going to get this money from these serial killings, and then I can go stay at a Days Inn anywhere in the country with my money from my serial, yeah. from my uh, Hitman job. Fucking idiot. <laughs> did all the other stuff. Put gloves on, probably That's wore crazy. a surgical mask, you know, didn't leave anything at the at the scene of the crime that could trace him back there. He got caught up on paper trail shit. What a fucking stupid idiot. Um, on July 19th, 1994, after a 16-month FBI investigation, Perry and Horn were arrested in Detroit and L.A. respectively. In terms of manpower and hours, said one investigator, this was a very intense time, a very intense time-consuming case. To see a handicapped child murdered was completely unacceptable. James Edward Perry's trial was held before Lawrence before Lawrence Horns, and the evidence was damning. Between the taped phone calls, travel logs connecting the two associates, 
telephone records on the night of the murders and the evidence that Perry had purchased the Hitman book, which he followed precisely, it was enough to convince a jury of his guilt. In order to link Perry and Horn even more than they had already, than they had already, prosecutors granted Horn's cousin, Thomas Turner, full immunity in exchange for his testimony, and he told the court everything. Mm. He explained how he introduced Horn to Perry, how he kept lines of communication open between the two parties, and how he refused to cooperate with the two after their murders. It's good that he snitched on them because they did something yeah. horrible, but you, I don't think he gave Lawrence that business card because he really thought this guy Perry was a, a pastor. I feel like he went, yeah, man, here's this guy Perry. If you're having problems and you, you think you need that money, call him. He helps people. Bling. And then it's like he winked at him. Like, I definitely don't think he just thought Perry was a spiritual person. <laughs> I think he knew he was a hitman. Why else did you introduce him to him? So you, why do you know a hitman? I know Detroit is gully, but, like, you just know a hitman? Call him. He, he can, has a card? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> With, like, uh, cold words on it. A spiritual advisor. <laughs> Because I send spirits to the next, I send them to the afterlife. A spiritual finisher. Or something. Yeah, yeah. Like that's that's wild. But he wild. got his immunity and he went up there and sang like a bird. This guy's has he has business cards. It's with it's amazing yeah. to me. Make sure you tell him that I'm a spiritual advisor. Bling. He winked to him at Perry and he's like, "All right, man, y'all keep these around. That's when is anybody ever gonna need a hitman?" And then here come Lawrence knocking on the door. Man, my wife's a bitch. I'm poor. She's rich. And if she dies. I get all the money. What do I do? Uh, well, yeah, well, I, I actually know a guy. Here, here's a business card. Mm. Call him up sometime. In October 1995, James Edwards Perry was convicted of a triple homicide and sentenced to death. Perry, however, professed his innocence the whole time. Which, I'm sure, he, of course he did. <laughs> it's like, bro, first of all, in the book it says, shoot them in the eye. You shot them in the eye. Second off, in the book it says, put a silencer on the gun and shave the serial number off. The weapon that we found with you has those things on it. Mm -hmm. Third of all, the book says wear a black duster and black gloves. Are these not your black gloves? And he's like, yeah, man, but I didn't do this. Mm -hmm. I just was in town because I wanted to see the Washington monument. And I just so happened to be around that time. And I called Lawrence because um, we're friends and I was seeing how my friend was doing. And who Take, wrote this book? Is that is that legal? I'm sure it was like I'm sure this was written by like Mr. X. I don't think you can just write a book. It's not legal to be a hitman, so oh, I'm sure it was written by this like this guy. Book. Yeah, whoever wrote the book definitely used like a pseudonym, like not his real name, like Mr. Murder, like written That's by insane. Mr. Murder, because that book is um how do you I don't even know how you what channels you even go through to get that book, you know. To find out about that book. Number one underground seller or something? Yeah, like that. it's on the black market. <laughs> it's on the black market bestseller list. Um, oh, really? You can check that out. Yeah, oh, hit, you said Hitman? Well, I have been thinking about becoming a Hitman in my spare time. You know, ever since I retired uh, from my job, I just, you know, I've been kind of bored at home. So I've been thinking about maybe, you know, taking up Hitmanning. <laughs> it's not golf. It's not golf. Uh, in January of 1996, it was Lawrence Horn's turn for a trial in the masterminding of the murders of his ex-wife and child. Like James Edwards Perry, the evidence provided an insurmountable task for his legal team to defend against. The jury watched videotapes in his possession, the surveillance video he made in the van, the video of Trevor's bedroom, 
in the alibi video where he's like, hey, guys, I'm just making a, a video about Miles Davis. It's 930 at night and it's October 11th and I'm in California. Like, what? Why are you Why are you talking like that? Here's my girlfriend who is my witness to the fact that I am in California. This is Lawrence, by the way. I'm in California. <laughs> what? That okay? Well, that's been the documentary of Miles Davis. It just had like two minutes of Miles Davis at the beginning. Like, come on, man, that's a terrible video. Yeah. So, um, they saw the map of the Northgate Drive that that Horn had drawn, along with the paper in his pocket he had on the night of the murders, containing Mildred's flight information. They heard the recorded conversations between Perry and himself. They saw the financial records that had proven Horn was desperate for money. So basically, he was such a broke boy that they were like, this is evidence that you would kill somebody. You're so broke and a loser that you would kill somebody if it meant you get money for it. Right. Which I'd take offense to. I'd be like, all right, man, y'all don't have to be bringing up my financial situation into this. That's rude. Basically, he's telling the judge, like, judge and people of the jury, look at this dusty, poor man. He's so broke. How broke is he? He is so broke that he would murder his ex-wife and his child to get money. Oh, damn. Look at his shoes. <laughs> they definitely were roasting him in the court. What are those? What are those? <laughs> it's 1993, but what are those? <laughs> Bruh, look at this dude. <laughs> Wait till you see the... <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> Top of his head. <laughs> Look at his lips. <laughs> Here's where it got real fucked up. Horn's mother, Pauline, testified that her son's financial situation was dire and listed out the times that he borrowed from her just to pay the bills. Mm. So after everything died down, what are those? Ah, oh, look at your dusty suit. And it's like, Here's his mother, Pauline. Yes, I love my son, but boy, he is so broke that he had to borrow money from me just to pay his Netflix account. It's 1993, but he had Netflix. <laughs> I probably should have used like a more 90s. Yeah. Uh, that, he, had to, he, had, yeah, he, had to, he had to borrow money from me to pay for those CDs. He had a, C, a monthly CD uh, a subscription where they send you three CDs. He had to borrow money from me. <laughs> To, this is a long way to go around to make my point. Just forget it. I'm gonna move on. Just never mind. <laughs> he, he had to borrow money to get a CD. Subscription was six ninety nine a month. <laughs> oh, look at <laughs> his broke ass. Oh, look at his ties. It's as long. It's down to his dick. Broke. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we're gonna move. Whoa. On. Yeah, we're gonna move on. <laughs> Moving on. Uh. <laughs> uh, the shit is you uh, uh, <laughs> uh, Yeah so his mom came up there Roasted him one time Called him broke as shit And then uh, um, so And then Thomas Turner Just as he did in Perry's trial Testified once again on his own cousin Providing that Horn and Perry Conspired through him To plan the murders In all there were over 700 pros Prosecution exhibits Linking Horn and Perry to the killings. So basically, they just, wow. they had so much evidence <laughs> and witnesses. It was the perfect case. So much evidence and witnesses that the, I'm sure the jury was like, I mean, 
can we just go we right you had us at 150 pieces of evidence we're good we he's guilty no, you get this. You're gonna get this whole 700. <laughs> we did all this work, all this work we did. You gonna get all you these. Gonna, I'm telling you, but you know how much, you know how much man hours I put into getting this evidence. No, you are gonna hear this whole thing. He was on the phone. Da 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 da. da. He got flights. He had pieces of paper in his. All of it. you're getting all of this. That's that. That remind me of when you were in school a long time ago, and then that day you did your homework. And they're like, you know what, guys, we're not collecting homework. No. He's like, no, you're gonna, <laughs> you're gonna take this, uh, Miss Scop. You're going to take this and you're going to give me a fucking grade on it because I'll burn this whole school down. <laughs> right. That was when you could still say shit like that. You still make a light threat. Don't let me catch you after school. And then you don't have to go see the counselor or nothing like that. You can just get away with it. No, you're going to collect this. Everybody's like, yes. Yeah. Right. Like, no, no, I don't. No. I don't ever do my homework. <laughs> and I did it now. So you're going to give me something. I wanted to go to recess today. Yeah, you're going to give so me extra credit. Paper. I'm getting extra credit or something. <laughs> or you can see me outside. You can meet me at the monkey bars, because that's just how I'm feeling today. Miss mm-hmm. Haskell. Hey, man. What? I like Miss Haskell. All right, man. Don't, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't realize I touched the sore spot on you. All right, we're going we're gonna to push past that. Shout out to Miss Haskell. Uh, <laughs> on May 17th, 1996, Lawrence T. Horn, the man who spent countless hours perfecting the sound of America's greatest musical institutions was sentenced to life in prison. Good. Horn's daughter, Tiffany, cried out in the court, I hate you. I hate you so much. You killed my family. Deputies led Lawrence away, his destiny to live forever in a cell. Saying no words in response, Horn just shook his head. He's probably like, Mm-mm-mm. Tiffany, you know I'm innocent. It's like, no, you aren't. You aren't, though. Because they always are like, you're just, you're just going to sit up here and say that to your dad uh, like that in court in front of everybody, that you hate me. Mm-mm-mm. You know, the devil is a lie, you know, and you shouldn't say stuff like that against you. I do hate you, you murderer. Mm-mm-mm. Just going to lie. Just going to lie in front of all these people. That'll piss me off. Take me to my cell. <laughs> yeah, this guy, I don't like this guy. That'll piss me off. Yeah. Like, oh, you just going, mm-mm-mm. You hate me? I gave you life, Tiffany. You think I would do this to your mother? You did. We have evidence that you did it. <laughs> you, that's you hurt my feelings today. He he's on the defense. Yeah. You really hurt my feelings today. You know, I was looking forward to seeing you today in, in court, saying hi. Fuck you, man. <laughs> I hate you. You going on? <laughs> you are something else. Mm-mm-mm. What would your mother say? She can't say anything. You murdered her. You evil bastard. Wow. She's gonna use hurtful names like that. That's sad, Tiffany. Anyway, in December of 2009, James Edward Perry died in a Maryland hospital from illness at the age of 61. He never saw an execution. Lawrence Horn died in prison in February of 2017. Mm. Once again, this was my affirmative murder for the week. Uh, This article was from uprocks.com. It was written by Darielle Figueroa with contributions from Chloe Schaudhouse. But, um, yeah, so he died in February 2017, and the Perry fellow also wow. died in jail at the age of 61. And, you know, um, I'm sure they are, you know, if you believe in that kind of thing, in hell or something like that, you know, nowhere pleasant. <laughs> you know, no, nobody that kills a a child who is like a paraplegic goes somewhere good. For money, yeah. And nobody that kills their own kid for money goes somewhere good. So, um, yeah. So that those are my affirmative murders. That was a good one, man. Um, uh, I don't have anything else to add. Uh, we will be getting those um, next wave of stickers out ASAP. Um, I'll probably get on that at some point this week and uh, get those to Fran, and he'll pop those in the mail and do whatever he does, puts his 
little spin on it or whispers into the box and makes him go get to you guys extra fast. I don't I don't <laughs> ask questions on how he does his job. He just does what he does. But um, this has been another episode of Affirmative Murder. I've been Alway, Alvin, well, I've been Alvin Williams, joined as always by my partner in true crime, Franco Evans. And we'll see you guys next week. Deuces. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park.